Good morning. We're going to be reading from the Word of God, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 21. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some has served, swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. It is always good to be here worshiping in the house of the Lord and celebrating our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. Keep your fingers in your Bible there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. We will be referring back to that text as we move forward uh, today. But what a way to end this book in our study here on the gospel. I mean, our study of the book of Timothy, Paul's instructions to this young, budding uh, church leader here and how the church of Jesus Christ is to be organized in a way that honors him. For our last message today, uh, the Apostle's words are a very sobering, I think, uh, statement to us, especially those of us who are North American Christians. Uh, in North America, I would say that materialism uh, is a functional religion that just pervades our entire society. And this religion comes full on with religious rituals as well such as regular pilgrimages to the shopping malls, or now in this modern era, you don't actually need to go anywhere. You can just go on Amazon.ca, and then you can do all of your shopping there instead. In fact, the idea that we can treat our stresses and our pains and our sufferings in this life with buying stuff is so normative that experts have a word for it, and they call it retail therapy. In fact, if you look at this religion and how it affects us North Americans, the most extreme zealots, you know, who are materialists, are quite willing actually to camp out overnight in sub-zero weather outside churches like Best Buy on Boxing Day, these organizations of religious worship, in order for them to snag some door crasher deal, like an like a 80-inch, you know, ultra HD TV. And they take these things and they stick them in their entertainment centers which occupy the shrines of their houses so that you can worship. It's like buying some holy relic. And they worship in the privacy of their own homes the god of entertainment. You know, so fanatical, I think, are some of the adherents of this religion that they have actually, in crowds, trampled their very own kind to death on Black Friday madnesses in Walmart and other places in the United States in an attempt to see some of these like holy limited edition icons. It's absolutely nuts. When you look at this from the outside, the question we need to ask ourselves is, why do we do this? You know, why, why do we even need this in the first place? And I think that the reason that North Americans function this way is because North American society as a whole has evolved 
and believes that it has two now basic fundamental needs in order to be happy. One, North Americans fundamentally believe that they need to be comfortable. That is, life needs to be removed from suffering and trials and difficulties. And the second thing that North Americans functionally believe is that they need to be entertained. A life without entertainment is a life not worth living. So you need comfort and you need entertainment. And this is where money comes in because money is the currency in our world that we use to acquire the things that we want that will help us relieve our burdens and our stresses, in other words, make us comfortable. And money is what we will also use to purchase for ourselves either toys or the time that we need to be able to relax and entertain ourselves. So this is, I think, why North Americans are largely obsessed with working, making more, and being productive because of these two needs that our society believes that we have. But you know what's actually crazy about this is that despite our access now to better products, a whole plethora of healthcare options, and shopping, you know, uh, you know just you know, huge stores, the truth of the matter is I think that we really are not any happier today than we were 50 years ago. There's a psychologist by the name of Dr. G David G. Myers, as an American psychologist, uh, has said this. He says, compared with our grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, slight less, slightly less happiness, and a much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. In fact, our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. The American Psychological Association also affirms this as well and says that anything has happened to our well-being in the last number of decades, it actually seems to have declined even while consumption has gone up. Seems completely counterintuitive for such a thing to happen, but it's true. You know, this is really an amazing statement coming out of the scientific community. And the question is, if that is true, why does everybody enter into this rat race in which we are chasing after houses, money, stocks, phones, TV, anything else? There's no proof that it has made us happier. And in fact, the proof says the opposite. It seems to have made us more miserable in life. Furthermore, if you think about it, if it makes more miserable in life, it's definitely not worth having, but these things certainly can't help you when you're dead. So what value truly are they? You know, there's a story told about John D. Rockefeller, who is classified uh, when adjusted for inflation as really the wealthiest American to ever have lived. And when John Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked, how much did J.D. Rockefeller leave? And his accountant's reply was a deadpan, straight face. He left all of it. Didn't give a monetary figure, but his point was, you can't take it with you. See, possessions can't ultimately satisfy you. And worse, possessions that are handled incorrectly can actually begin to own you and make your life miserable instead. And you actually see this in our culture when you ask people like, Oh, are you ready to move yet, you know, into your new house? And generally, people give you a stressed out response like, I hate moving. And the problem they always say is, I have too much stuff. That is the problem with North Americans, first world problem. See, you may not realize it, but possessions actually uh, exert a gravitational pull over your life. 
And when your pile of stuff is actually big enough, you will actually begin to feel like a tiny little satellite that's in orbit around it and you have no escape. And it begins to drive your life, making you go where you don't want to go. And you're stressed out because it controls you. And in absolutely extreme cases, when your pile of possessions reaches a critical mass, the worst part is when it collapses in on itself and becomes a black hole and actually sucks you in and kills you. This happens to celebrities all the time when their pile of fame, possessions, and wealth becomes so large, their number of Instagram followers becomes so great that it actually consumes them. And the rise and fall of their possessions changes their mental and their physical well-being. If you don't believe it, just look at their lives of Hollywood stars. How many have suffered from drug addictions despite having piles of money? I remember reading about one actor saying he had so much money, he went into drugs because he didn't know what else to spend it on. You know, you look at this, what is killing us in our society, and you think, is there a solution to it? And the truth of the matter is, there is. God has a solution to it in the Bible. And His solution is to lay aside the crushing weight of all these things, the tyranny of things, and to trust Him for provide, to provide for us, even as we give away all these things that are choking us to death, so that we might become rich in giving. And my hope for us today as we look at this last section in the book of Timothy is that we would learn and that we would see from this that the true life, that is the God-honoring life, is not a life of getting, but a life of giving. Giving as Jesus Christ gave His very own life for us. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the greatest investment that you will ever make in your life, an investment in eternity. So before we launch into this, let us pray and ask for the Lord's blessing as we look at our text. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for allowing us these months to work through this book of 1 Timothy. What a joy it's been, God, just to study the timeless truths from your law and to see, oh God, how you want your beautiful bride, oh God, to live Father, it's a joy to know that we are people who are treasured by you and saved by you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, as we contemplate how to use our wealth and to use our possessions rightly in a way which that honors you, I pray, Father, we would do this with joy in our hearts. Open our eyes, God, to behold wondrous things from your law and speak to us, God, through your word. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's begin by rereading, brothers and sisters, verse 17. And we'll walk through this a verse at a time. The Apostle Paul speaking here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, if we're going to understand what's going on here, we need to understand who the rich in this present age are that Paul is referring to. You know, in the ancient world, the rich were often the people who were wealthy enough, really, that they didn't need to work anymore to make a living for themselves. For example, the rich man in Luke chapter 12 was so wealthy, and he had made such a killing off his agricultural business that he was trying to build for himself bigger barns to store up all of his wealth and say to himself, now, soul, I have so much that I can retire and live off of this plenty for year after year to come. So really, the modern equivalent, if you're thinking about it, will be retirement, where you no longer have to work for a living, but you have enough to live off of. 
Now, there are some of us here who are wealthy enough to retire, but for those of us who can't, we should not think that this only applies to the retirees and not to the rest of us as well. We North Americans who live in this world have access to medical treatment, sanitation, water, education that many people in poorer countries can only dream of. So even if we are not, let's say, in the upper echelon of North American society and objectively wealthy, I would still say that we are relatively wealthy on the global stage. Now, let's be clear about this. The Apostle Paul here previously had warned Christians about the danger of seeking after earthly wealth, saying that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and so therefore chasing after such a thing has resulted in some people leaving the Christian faith, and those who seek it actually pierce themselves through with many pains. But the Bible nowhere says that to be wealthy is inherently sinful. Rather, it is the seeking after and the desire to accumulate wealth for yourself and the love of it that is. So for some of us, we might be born into wealth. Others of us, because of our business deals or whatever, God chooses to bless us with wealth. The point is that even if we do have wealth, God will hold us accountable for how we use the wealth that he has gifted us with. Now, although the Bible does not prohibit being wealthy or having wealth, the Bible is very clear that having wealth does bring with itself a lot of dangers as well. For one, the command here, don't be haughty or don't be proud, actually implies something to us that wealth often seems to bring with it a sense of pride. And if we know anything about how, what money does in our world, that's understandably so. Like if you drop $300,000 on a Lamborghini and go driving around, you are sure to make very many friends who will want a nice ride in your Lamborghini. If you, for example, go farther than that and donate 100 times more, like $30 million, like Peter Aller did to UBC, they might even rename an entire law school after you and stick your name on degrees. The point is this, is that we understand in our world that money has the power to influence people and to functionally buy a certain kind of friends. It's stuff. And it's no wonder that when you have a larger pile of stuff that you actually begin to feel with my large pile of stuff and the extra digits in my bank account that perhaps I am worth something more than the other human being next to me who doesn't have this kind of stuff. You know, but the truth of the matter is that this is really an illusion. And the reason it's an illusion is because we all know that no amount of wealth or possessions can actually fundamentally change the worth and value of a human being. There are many billionaires and millionaires who have all the money in the world, but if you were to look at their character and their worth as a person, you would say that money has done nothing to improve them in the least bit. In fact, they're worse than some of the poor people that I know and I would rather be friends with. Money does nothing actually to change you as a person. And in fact, actually, money cannot buy you an extension to your life. It can't raise the dead. It can't stop the effects of aging. And neither can it prevent tragic accidents. In fact, the rich in our world die just like the poor do. And as someone once noted, you have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. See, the point is, you can't take it with you, even if you're buried with it. See, we're all made equal in God's image. And when we all stand before God on Judgment Day, there's going to be neither poor nor rich. And whether you're rich or poor, 
your debit cards and your checks on that day are going to bounce. So don't be prideful and think that your money makes you worth anything before a God who owns everything. That's the first don't that Paul points out here. But there's a second one that he points out in our text. And he says this, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, many of us in Canada who have lived here and known peace and prosperity don't know what it's like to live through a financial disaster or war. But many of you sitting here who are immigrants, you might have parents or grandparents who suffered actually in this way and know what it's like to live in poverty. Or perhaps you come from a country in which you came with nothing and you know what it's like to be poor and live in economic ruin. In our country, we normally think, well, in Canada, things are just going to get better and better. Won't my investments continue to increase? Now, typically, that's what happens, but is there any guarantee that this will go on into the future? How many of you have made investments here and have lost money in the last 10 years? I'm sure there's some of you. If you knew what you knew today, would you have bought what you bought 10 years ago? You know, the stock market crash of 1929 that led to the Great Depression led to actually many businessmen committing suicide. The last century has seen unexpected prosperity, but also unexpected financial turmoil. Two world wars that nobody ever imagined would take place. You know, today we feel like Canada and the United States are safe. But the truth of the matter is history shows, and in God's timing, no empire lasts forever. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge was a famous English journalist in the 20th century, and he wrote this fantastic words about the rise and fall of nations. He said, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. I look back on my fellow countrymen, he's talking about Britons, ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who made them mighty would make them mightier still. I have heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I have heard an Italian clown announce that he would restart the calendar to begin his own ascension to power. I have heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I have seen America wealthier and in terms of weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people desired, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways roaring all in one lifetime, all gone, all gone with the wind. And you read that, you see how true that is. You know? Friends, doesn't the Bible speak rightly when it says, like in James chapter 4, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's all we are. 
100 years ago, the British Empire's red on a map stretched from sea to sea and across the entire globe, and Britain exported its culture to the world. Today, America exports its culture and its values all over the world, and they're going to do it again in just a couple days on November 22nd when they export Frozen 2 to the world. And every little child in 25 different languages will be singing American philosophy. But in 50 years, what will we see? A recession? Another world war? The collapse of America and the rise of the Chinese superpower? How uncertain earthly affairs are and wealth is. This is why I think Paul is right to urge us and say, set your hope on God. You know, Muggeridge was right, I think, to end his essay this way. Behind, he says, the debris of these self-styled sullen supermen and imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. It's so true. Church, right, the only hope that we have the, is God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is certain and money is not. All the kingdoms of this world will one day turn to dust. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Scriptures say, is an everlasting kingdom that will stretch from sea to shining sea. And of the end of His reign of His kingdom, there will be no end. And you see, in a world without God, accumulating money, of course, is the best. That's the only kind of certainty you can have, even though it's uncertain. But even then, it's pitiful insurance. But because God is real, and because God is our anchor, as we trust Him and go to Him and we follow Him, can we not believe that He'll richly provide for us abundantly all that we could ever need for this life? Therefore, Paul says, hope in God. But you might ask, what does this practically look like? You talk about setting your hope on God. What does that actually look like? And the apostle leaves us with no clues. Look with me at verse 19. 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. These are Paul's instructions for how this works itself out practically. Four things, but in two pairs. Number one, outward action, that is doing good works. And number two, that is inward and a heart of generosity that is ready to share. See, hoping in earthly wealth results in actually you serving yourself and being generous in pouring out your own wealth right into your own savings account. However, hoping in God makes a huge difference in that it results in you actually serving others and generously pouring out your wealth into the hands of those who need it the most in this world in the name of Christ. The question we all need to ask ourselves is this, will you give of your time and your money to others and to God or will you give it to yourself? Only two kinds of people in this world. You know, the second thing that Paul mentions here, that is doing good works or investing your time, actually has appeared over and over again in the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, this same word, to do good, is used in another place in the Scriptures, in the book of Acts, Acts 14, 17, as Paul is preaching and talking to the people of Lystra about how they know that God is actually good towards them. The text says in Acts 14, 17, he, that is God, did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart 
gifts and with food and gladness. In other words, what we learn from this is that the one of God's many good works towards the human race is the fact that he feeds everyone whether they love him or not, both his friends and his church and his enemies as well. And I think what we can learn from this, even as Christians, is that the good works that we do to a world around us are not conditioned on their favorable response towards us or whether they treat us well. God serves his enemies and his children alike every day, and so we do as well. We are to go out and do good. Now, it's easy to tell when a person is being rich towards themselves because you can see it in the way that they visit country clubs, play golf, and spend their, all their days on nice white sand beaches. But for those who are rich towards others, their lives are also very visible as well. To be rich towards others looks like a calendar that is full of visits to the sick, serving the poor, counseling the broken, feeding those who are hungry, cleaning toilets, scrubbing the floor, being with the people of your church, serving those who are the least among us, and so on. You know what's marvelous about the church of Jesus Christ is that in the church, there is no such thing truly as rich or poor. The CEO and the single uneducated mother both serve alongside each other, either in cleaning the floor or filling up the box of fishy crackers so that the kids can eat. There is no differentiation when it comes to the church. For in Christ, all are the same. That's number one, right? That is do good works whether you're a CEO or whether you're a lowly, humble person who has been given just one talent in this world by God. But there is a second thing that God also commands. It's not also just good works, but he commands the affections of the heart is, and that is generosity and a readiness actually to share and to give. Now, in North America, we are taught from a very young age that my house, that is my little home, is my castle. It is my fortress of solitude and it is my private sanctuary. And whether in your house you jealously guard your entertainment room or perhaps you like the garage with all of the toys that you store in there and the projects you like to work on or perhaps you love sewing and you have your own dedicated sewing room and you say, this is my shrine, nobody else shall enter it, this is what makes me happy. The truth of the matter is that it's not yours. God says that the beasts and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. All that we have is but a gift from him. We are not owners. We are stewards, stewards of the wealth that he has given us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, if God has given us wealth, he has given us a house or resources that go beyond what is normal, the question is why? Is our house to be our castle and our private sanctuary? Or is it an outpost for the kingdom in this great war that we are in so that people might come to know Christ? Can we say to the Lord, here it is, Lord, all of my earthly possessions. You gave it to me, so let my kitchen be a place that feeds the hungry. Let my living room's walls be stained with the tears of those who are broken and come to me for counsel in the name of Christ. Let my bedrooms shelter those who are displaced. Let my garage store the tools that I need to fix the homes of those who are broken and need help and let my car transport those whose legs are too weak to walk God all that I have is yours you use it as you see fit 
that's the heart of generosity that God wants us to have as believers, to say, all of that is yours, Lord. You use it as you see fit. Now, the Bible isn't saying here, give handouts to those who are idle and lazy. No, people are to work, especially believers in the church are not to be known for their idleness. But for those who are truly in need, those who are genuine widows, we have an obligation and a responsibility to care for them. And this is a charge that God has given us. You know, in our culture, many people like to quote and say, I live by like the Peter Parker or the Spider-Man principle, which is, you know, this line, right? With great power comes great responsibility, so be responsible. You know, but the truth of the matter is, as much as North Americans like this kind of thinking, it's, that's not new and unique to our society. Before Uncle Ben in Spider-Man said that, the French philosopher Voltaire 200 years ago said that. And before him, Jesus of Nazareth preaching said something which was the foundation for this. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. You know, what does God demand from us who have wealth? What he demands from us is not to abuse it, but to use it and to use it for him. That's what we're to do. Now, the question we ask is, if we do this, be devoted to good works and have hearts which are generous and ready to give, what is the end result of this? And Paul answers that for us in the next verse. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but did you know that God is actually very concerned with financial investments? It's just that he's more interested in us investing in people rather than property. See, he's more interested in us advancing his kingdom and not building our own little kingdom with our few trinkets and the money that we have. Furthermore, when it comes to God as a financial investor, he is the only mutual funds or financial investor who does not plan just for short-term three-year investments or 10-year long-term investments. He plans for investments that last for an eternity. He's the only one in the business of talking to you about ultra long-term investments. You know, the bank will tell you, do you care enough about your future that you would be willing to forego some of your pleasure now and save some of your money so that your retirement will be well taken care of? God looks at you and says something similar but far more important. He says, do you care enough about your eternity to forego some of your simple temporal pleasures now and invest and build a good foundation for yourself that will last forever? See, it's not wrong to buy stocks or GICs or to invest your money in a savings account. But just remember in this world that those investments are secondary. The primary investments that we are to make are spiritual investments that last forever. That's the wisest possible investment you can make in this life because it lasts forever. So before you turn you know, to the financial markets or you think about acquiring another property, the best thing to do is actually to stop and pray and say, Lord Jesus, I have wealth that you have blessed me with. But is there a person, an orphan, a church, or a ministry, or something that you would want me to invest in instead? 
Where would you want me to sink my time, that is my good works, and my wealth or my money into? Time and money matter not just to this world. It matters to God as well. You know, I put this in your outline, number one. If you're outlining, invest your time and money in God's kingdom and not your own. You know, do you know what a tragedy is? Many people think that a tragedy in life is reaching retirement age and not having anything in your RRSP. Or it's, I should have bought Amazon stock in 1997 when it was worth $1.70 and sold it yesterday when it was worth a thousand times more at $1,700. You invested $1,000 in Amazon 20 years ago, you'd be a millionaire today. That's not a tragedy. Furthermore, a tragedy is not getting cancer and dying at 40 years old, especially if you know the Lord. Or getting into an unexpected accident. You know, John Piper, in his famous sermon 20 years ago at a passion conference, told the story about how there were two single ladies in his church who had served in Cameroon over 80 years old. One is a medical doctor, you know, given her life, and the other is a single person all their lives, given exclusively to serving the poor amongst them and helping. And they were killed tragically when the brakes on their car failed and it went right off a cliff and they died instantly. Piper asked the question, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ two decades after almost all of their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I tell you what a tragedy is, he says. I'll read to you from the Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's the American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your Creator, be I collected shells. See my shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to embrace, to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Church, the self-centered life is a tragedy. But a life given in service to others out of reverence for God, that's not a tragedy. That's glorious, and that's a rich life. I love what Paul says here when he says, take hold of that which is really life. In other words, what it expresses to us is that great truth that all people die, but not everybody actually truly lives. See, our God-given consciences, though they are corrupted by sin, actually silently shout to us, that the good life is not the self-indulgent life. People know this inside their hearts. But the good life is a self-sacrificial life. You know, we might live in what I call Generation I. That is iPhone, iPad, and it plays itself in I'm first in line. I want to achieve my potential. I want to build a business. I, 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 I. But even us in Generation I know intuitively that the most admirable people are not those who said, me before you, but those who say, you before me. And whether this is 
those who are Medal of Honor recipients who died for their country on foreign battlefields, or people like Mother Teresa who served the poor, we respect and we honor such people because we understand the intrinsic value of what they have done. You know what Paul commands here? That is, to take hold of what is truly life by selflessly giving of our time so that we can do good works and giving of our wealth to people who are in need really is an echo of Jesus' words. Jesus said, right, in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, you cannot grab the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot grab eternal life if your hands are too full of this world's gold. You have to put it down and say, I take either the gospel or the gold of this world. No man can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other. See, we as Christians can't just talk. We also have to walk as well. And our giving with joy shows that we have a new heart and is evidence that we have been born again and that our ultimate joy and hope is not here on this earth, but it is in heaven where Christ is. And that is why true living is a giving life, giving out of response, a joyful response to the commands of a loving and giving God who gave it all for us. And that's why I think Jesus was right when he said, truly, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We must live out the implications of the gospel in our lives. But let us never forget that even as we do so, we must always guard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pure gospel that he has commanded us to proclaim. Look with me at verses 20 to 21. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You know, the Christian deposit here, this final instructions that Paul gives Timothy, guard the good deposit, are really special. You know, as he speaks to his young disciple very personally. personally. In other words, what I think he's saying here is, Timothy, God has entrusted you with the gospel of Jesus Christ and also a charge to be faithful to it. Your whole life and what you preach is one package, and this is like a banker's deposit. God has given it to you and deposited it with you, and I don't want you to lose it. You know, for myself, as I think about it as a Christian, what does this mean for me? You know, as a pastor, guarding the good deposit means placing the needs of God's people over my own desire for comfort and wealth. It means taking my preferences for how I want to spend my time and my money, where I live, what I buy. All of these things are secondary to the task of raising up my own children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and raising up the people of God so they are equipped for every single good work that the church might look like the pure bride that it's supposed to be. Though some decisions we might make as a family might seem crazy for either our mental health or our financial well-being, when you think about it, if I live another 30 years, I hope I make it to 60, I hope that I will get to see the fruit of my labors in another young generation of preachers, ministers, faithful Christians who are out there in the lower mainland, starting churches, serving in other churches, ministering to the poor and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ on every single corner and sidewalk out there. If I could see that, happen in my lifetime and my children growing up in a society that is full of people who are bold witnesses for Jesus? Who cares that my RSPs are empty? 
It's worthless, right? I'm already rich in heaven. It's not important at the end of the day. The instructions to us are seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that everyone worries about will be added to you. If God could feed a prophet at a brook by sending him birds to carry him bread, how much more can he take care of us even if we bankrupt ourselves to make other people spiritually rich in the name of Jesus Christ? You know, I once sat on a Q&A panel after a conference and was asked a question by a young man in his early 20s as to whether or not it was wise for him to marry now or whether he should wait actually and get some more education and a better career. And I thought about that in response. I shared with him in the, in the audience there the story of C.T. Studd, the famous missionary to China in the 1800s. And although C.T. Studd was given a huge inheritance of millions of dollars, he felt convicted that he actually had to give it all away. He saved only a small portion of it, which in today's dollars would still have amounted to several hundred thousand dollars, as a wedding gift to his fiancée. But his fiancée, being a woman cut from the very same type of missionary cloth that he was, looked at him and said, Charlie, what did the Lord Jesus tell the rich young man to do? Charlie replied and said, sell all. Well then, she said, we will start clear with the Lord then at our wedding. Give it all away. And they proceeded at the outset of their wedding to give away the rest of their money for the Lord's work and then to live by faith for the rest of their life. Is that idiocy or is that devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? In conclusion, I told the young man and the audience listening, if you are poor because you are irresponsible and wasting your money, don't even think about getting married. Stay far away from any daughter of God. But if you are poor because you are generous towards God, like C.T. Studd was, go ahead and get married. Don't you, you, though you don't have a penny in the bank, God will take care of you because you have what is of first most importance first. Friends, how we live matters. Because the church of Jesus Christ needs to look like the church. And by that, we mean that the church must be devoted to love and good works and also sharing of its wealth with people so that they see not only the work of Jesus Christ, but also the generosity of Jesus Christ. Any human organization can feed the hungry and care for the sick, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ can deliver the spiritual medicine of the gospel that will save people from the disease of sin that will lend them up into a place of eternal torment and hell. Only Christ can save people from what they are heading for. Nobody else can. And that's why Paul is so clear, Timothy, he says. Don't stray away into irreverent Babel. Don't chase after these false gospels or these things that are contradictory and call themselves knowledge. You stick to the good deposit, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and let the church be the church and represent God to the world. Fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good deposit that you have been entrusted with in both your words and in your deeds. Do it by God's grace. And that's why he ends his letter and say, grace be with you. You work, but never forget, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be what empowers you to work. You know, brothers and sisters, you know, this has been a marvelous letter. And what a way to end it with this question, right? We all have to ask ourselves this question. What are we investing in? Are you investing in your kingdom or God's kingdom by the way that you live and the way that you use your resources and your wealth? 
Has your wealth made you so proud that maybe you actually need to repent of it and turn it back over to God and say, God, I took this off the altar, but now I need to put it back on and you do with it as you see fit. Maybe you've been robbing God of the time that he has given you on this earth by spending on your own pleasures and your hobbies. If people were to look at your life, would they say, that is a servant of self? Or would that they say, that is a servant of our Savior? You know, if God has convicted you of this while well, you've just been sitting here, I would urge you, don't delay. Go to our God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If only we would confess to him and have him turn your life right and make you new for him. You ask him for a heart to pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to imitate your Savior. You know, for those of you who are outlining, I put this number two. Imitate Jesus who gave his time and precious blood to save you from your sins. You know, this is actually the heartbeat and why we can do what we do. You know, we look to Jesus Christ, who was the one who ultimately gave it all. Though he was rich, the Bible says, for our sake he became poor. He left his throne above to associate with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, ordinary garden variety sinners like some of those who are you and me, but are still under the condemnation of God. He paid for our souls, not with perishable silver and gold, but with his own precious blood and poured it out on Calvary's cross so that we could be restored to fellowship with God. You know, Christ died as a poor, naked, impoverished wretch living under the curse of God on the cross so that we, by his death, could become rich, clothed in his righteousness, and instead of experiencing the wrath of God at the cross, we experience the privilege of being born again as sons and daughters with an eternal home with him forever. Christ traded everything, took what we deserved, and exchanged it so that we could have true life. And this is the king that we serve. And if you see him rightly, you see what he has done, and you understand the greatness of his sacrifice for you, you can live a life that is full out giving, generous with your wealth, with no safety net behind you, because you know that your anchor and your foundation is firmly laid up in heaven. The place where your treasure can never be stolen by a thief, where moth does not corrupt it. You are secure. This is why, as Christians, we can throw off our pride, throw off our wealth, throw off our earthly security, because we have a security in heaven. Because Jesus Christ was generous with us and gave us his very blood for the forgiveness of sins. We're saved. We are saved. And that is our joy. You know, for some of you who are sitting here, I see new faces as well. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would urge you today to make the best financial investment for your future you would ever make and that is to invest in Christ. Invest in his blood that was spilled for you. Invest in his kingdom's work. Give yourself over to him and look at the incredible return that he offers for you, an infinitely valuable reward that will last forever in his kingdom and a restored right relationship with your God. If that is you, I would urge you to turn from your sins, come to know Jesus, ask him to be your Lord, and allow you to live a life that you could never have dreamed of living. You know, brothers and sisters, the question for us is what are we investing it in? And may the Lord Jesus Christ himself give us the strength and the eyes to see the ultimate value of what he has called us to do so that we might respond with joy. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us true riches in Christ. Thank you for being so generous with us so that we might also go out and be absolutely generous with others. Lord, would you help us to live as Jesus did, who gave of his time and his wealth so that we, by his sacrifice, could become eternally rich. And so also, we, by the sacrifice of earthly time and earthly wealth, make others eternally rich in your kingdom. Father, would you help us, God, in this area which we are so tempted to be self-sufficient in, to actually lay that all at your feet and to trust you that if we seek your kingdom first and your righteousness, all the rest of these things will be added to us. Father, give us joy in you. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.